Southern Fried Pop Culture. I am one of your hosts, Mandy Kay. And I'm Kelly Lee. Each week, we're going to talk about our experiences of Southern culture through the lens of stories that are set in the South, feature Southern characters, or are Southern-flavored in some way. On this show, our structure comes from our amazing theme song, written by our friend Jazzy Bentley. So we'll talk about the movie in three different sections, Southern culture in general, the bless your heart or problematic moments, and the things we love that tickle us pink. This week, we're talking about The Green Mile, which was based on the novel by Stephen King. Released in 1999, it stars Tom Hanks, Michael Clark Duncan, and David Morse. It was directed by Frank Darabont, who also wrote the screenplay. The IMDb classifies this movie as crime, drama, and fantasy, which I think was a first for me. (laughs) And the tagline is, Paul Edgecombe did not believe in miracles until the day he met one. I think that's pretty accurate. Crime, drama, fantasy. Yeah, I think so, too. And it's an interesting combination. It really is. I was surprised by it the first time I saw this movie. Now, the movie is set in Louisiana, which generally falls outside of what we call the South, because Louisiana and Texas are kind of more of their own thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But the book actually never specified a location. The book was just set in the Deep South. And so that's why I felt comfortable leaving this one on the list for us to talk about, even though... The movie was very, very clearly heavily Cajun in, in many aspects. Which was really funny to me, though, because there were parts of it I really felt like was set in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And then there were parts of it I was like, no, that's Louisiana. And then I was like, no, wait, that's Alabama. So <laughs> I felt comfortable talking about it on Southern Fried Pop Culture. Yeah, I feel like the family of the little girls... Mm-hmm. And, and that whole scenario, like the, the pitchfork mob looking yes. for the little girls, like that was straight up Alabama. Yes, that's what I thought too. But then you get Dell, who's very clearly Cajun. I, and, and for some reason, I just thought they had put Dell in an Alabama jail. Oh, yeah, okay. So much of this movie, I kept thinking. I thought they were like traveling to Louisiana for different parts, but I was like... This jail feels like it's in Alabama. Yeah. (laughs) So I have no idea as to the clarity of the setting. Yeah, I I don't think I would know it was Louisiana if they didn't specify, like, in the movie that it was Louisiana. And I'm actually, I'm not sure they did. I looked it up. I looked up what Mm -hmm. is the setting of the Green Mile. (laughs) 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 Um, Because I was having a hard time nailing down the accent work, particularly Tom Hanks and David Morse. Their accents... Mm -hmm. A lot of it, there was Southern, there was there was a hint, like a tiny, tiny hint of like Louisiana, mm-hmm. but then they kept doing this like 40 crime hijinks comedy accent. Yeah. And I, I didn't really know what to make of that because I've never actually heard somebody in real life say joiks instead of jerks. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that. But I I got the sense, and maybe I was wrong about this, I got the sense that this was like Great Depression era. like, Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of migrant people and a lot of people moving around, Mm -hmm. you know, and going different places or going where jobs were. And so it just kind of felt like, well, this is where they had maybe landed because this is where they could find work. And the same would have been true for a lot of the people who ended up in the jail, Mm. you know, like passing through and getting arrested or whatever. Um, But it felt like there was a lot of movement in that time. 
Right. And so maybe maybe it wasn't so much this tight-knit community of people, but I don't know. Like, that was just sort of my sense from from watching it. I didn't do a whole lot of research, and I'm torn between really, really wanting to read the book because I had not read the book before I watched this. I haven't read it either. And, and not wanting to read the book. Right. <laughs> because... If it leaves me feeling the way this movie left me feeling, then I'm not reading it. But I am curious. Like, I mean, like I said, I I haven't read the book, but I saw some differences when I was reading about the movie today. Mm -hmm. And apparently, Paul did not experience the supernatural vision of what happened. He did an independent investigation and came to figure out that John Coffey was innocent that way, Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. An interesting difference. Yeah, and and what he should have done, as well as advocated for the man's release. But we'll get there when (laughs) I explode and bless hearts. Okay. (laughs) All right, well, let's start out with Southern culture. There wasn't a lot that was familiar to me in this movie, other than, like, places being recognizably Alabama, even though they were supposed to be Louisiana. (laughs) And there was moon pie. <laughs> and there was moon pies. Yes. The moon pie made my notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so did, did you find anything that was particularly familiar and relevant to your cultural experience in the South? The only thing that I would say I felt I immediately empathized for all of the guards. Um, we saw them like everybody was sweating through this whole movie. Mm-hmm. And those uniforms that they had to wear we like so fancy, dressed up like military. I was like, these guys have got to be dying mm-hmm. of heat. Like the palpable heat definitely felt real to me. And then Percy, who I hate and despise, had this line when they were chastising him about, you know, being so cruel to the prisoners. He said, so what? They aren't in cradle school. And I have not heard that expression in a very long time. But it, okay. I do remember it from when I was little. So that would be what we call nursery school or preschool right. today. Um, but I haven't heard that phrase in so long. But it did feel kind of authentic. And then I don't know if it would be necessarily limited to the South. But it was true of my experience growing up in the South. Paul, when he was trying to explain to Percy, you know, certain reasons why you shouldn't be a total asshole when you're a prison guard. He said, men under pressure can snap. That's why our job is to talk, not yell. And I remember being taught this because the men in my family worked very, very physically demanding jobs. And I grew up around a crew of of men working that way all the time. And this lesson was kind of instilled in me that sometimes you want to take extra care or caution or kind of keep the drama down because men under pressure can snap. And so that did sort of feel like home in that sense. Okay. But other than that, I mean, with the time periods being so vastly different, Mm -hmm. there wasn't a whole lot, you know, other than the moon pies. And it's not Southern at all, except I didn't know anything about this movie, except I knew it was written by Stephen King, and I did not know it was three damn hours long. I'm sorry. And so, <laughs> no, it's okay. But when the, so I had a friend over watching it with me, and um, and she told me she was like, you know, this movie is three hours, right? And I was like, what? I said, you know, there better be a ring and a hobbit in here <laughs> for three hours. 
Sadly, there was no ring and no hobbit. There was no ring and no hobbit, but that was about it for me. Okay. Yeah, that's more than I came up with um, for the the Southern culture experience, just because I think anywhere in the United States during the Great Depression is so far removed from anything I've experienced in my lifetime. Yeah. That it, it's it's recognizable, but it's only recognizable from what I've seen in books and movies. Mm-hmm. All right. I know we're going to spend the majority of this conversation in the bless your heart section. And I'm going to let you <laughs> kind of lead the charge because you have so much to say. I mean, when you were so raged out that you didn't even cry, I think you I did need to take the floor. Um, so I'm just going to say the two things that kind of really irritated me. And one is, I think, a stereotype of Southern culture, and that is that they had a literal pitchfork mob at the beginning. Yeah. And I feel like that is extraordinarily stereotypical of Mm. Southern people, Southern mobs, particularly poor rural people in the South. Mm -hmm. And and so that kind of frustrated me just a little bit, I think. But at the same time, they were looking for two little girls who were missing. So I kind of understand. And then the other thing was at the very, very end, John Coffey apologized for being what he is. He said, I'm sorry for what I am. And that just broke my heart. Nobody should ever have to apologize for who they are. One of the reasons I wanted to set the movie on fire. Set it on fire? Wow. (laughs) You feel pretty strongly about this one. So, yes. I'll quote Joshua Unruh with something that he has said about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. If this movie had a face, I would punch it. Okay. Like, I, (laughs) and everybody kept telling me, you're going to cry, you're going to cry. I was so filled with rage on John Coffey's behalf that I could not come close to tears. I just, it, it just like exploded with fury. At how he was being treated and and just the sheer injustice of it all. And I, 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 no, I did not want to cry. I wanted to set the whole thing on fire and take him home. And, (laughs) and and you got, there was no redemption in the movie for you. No, no, absolutely not. Even though he wanted to die, like he wanted the, the misery of his life to end. If the man had been shown love and kindness, if he had people who empathized with him, if he, if someone stood up for him, then maybe that would be different. But they didn't. And not only did they let him die, they let him die in front of all those people as a guilty man. And not only was he innocent, he had healed Paul and Melinda. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, like, I thought, well, if they if they can't get out of killing him, if there's no way to escape, then you mix up a potion and let him die gently in his sleep. You do not put him through that execution because your job is on the line. Like, hell no. No. Mm-mm. Nope. It was absolutely unforgivable to me. It was just absolutely not okay. And I just could not stand it I could not stand it I could not believe they went through with it I understand why they did I mean Paul offered him an escape and he didn't take it Paul said tell me what you want me to do do you want me to just let you go and do you want me to just let you go out alone in the world where you have no one and you're going to be all by yourself and people are going to be afraid of you that is not helping him 
in my opinion. That is not enough. Like, we have this amazing, miraculous healer, psychic, empath with, like, the most gentle heart and soul. And what does the world do to him but break his heart and treat him terribly and then execute him for a crime he did not commit? No, I, I understand. I understand your rage. I do. But I also understand his perspective just because... I mean, he gave some of the pain that he was feeling to Paul, and that was just a tiny piece of it. So for for every emotion that he felt, for every everything that he took in to take away from somebody else, he was in physical pain. And he never felt any of the good stuff because he was always trying to take the bad stuff from people. And I think that's why I completely understand his desire to just have it stop. And I think if that was what they came to, like if that is the absolute only way for that man to find peace is to die, then you help him die. But you help him die with dignity and with care. You do not let him go down in an execution the way that they did. And I think that's the part I just can't get past. I just, I don't think they had any other choice. Oh, we saw that they were fully capable of mixing up drugs and soda pop bottles. I think they could have figured something out. (laughs) <laughs> like and and maybe I just haven't had time to process my fury at the injustice of it to like get to the point where I would be more sympathetic with them but I I can't get there like I I just I was so upset and like so furious for how he had been treated I mean they could not even get that man a bed that he could lay on that would fit him like it just <laughs> He was seven foot tall. I know. I know. I don't care. (laughs) I think it just crosses my threshold of terrible treatment to a wonderful human being. And I can't stand it. So I'm just, I don't know. Maybe it's just, it goes too deep for tears. And my reaction is just to want to blow the place up and take care of him. Because I wanted someone to show him the kind of kindness that he had showed other people and I know that the the cards were kinder to him you know and I like that they took him to a movie and they didn't put the blindfold on him but I just it wasn't enough for me so I I yeah I mean I have a hard time even articulating why I just felt like they completely let him down and and then the whole thing ends you know so it's so depressing like there's no hope there's no sense of peace or forgiveness or anything it's just I let John Coffey die and now I'm cursed to walk this earth forever while everyone I know dies and it's just me and this mouse and it might be that way for the next 50 years and it it crushed my soul like (laughs) it just crushed my soul (laughs) That's why I kind of have hopes that the book would be different. But I think I maybe was naive enough that I really did not think he was going to die the way he died. And then when he did, I just refused to accept it. So. Yeah, I I think I look at it much differently than you do. I, I feel like he... John Coffey was treated horribly. Absolutely. He was treated horribly by the world. He was treated horribly by the justice system, by the people who immediately assumed he was guilty. Although, granted, he was kind of caught in a damning situation. 
mm-hmm. when you don't know what he can do, it absolutely looks like he killed those little girls. And so it, it's slightly understandable, the, the rage that some people had. But treating him the way they did because he was black, because he spoke slow, because he was so huge, like that part of, of his treatment, I thought, is absolutely as rage inducing as the rage that you feel. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the treatment that he got once he got to the prison was compassionate and kind. And I guess it was it was also the fact they all knew damn well he was innocent. But none of them tried to clear his name. None of them tried to find out what actually happened to those little girls. And when they when he healed Melinda and they were discussing whether or not they should tell Hal that he was innocent. You know, Paul's wife said, well, if there's nothing Hal can do about it, don't tell him. Don't put that burden on him. And I'm like, bull shit. This is an innocent man who just saved his wife's life. You need to tell Hal and he needs to figure out what he can do. It just, that whole thing, like, oh, we're just going to throw up our hands because, gee, there's nothing we can do about this. I, it, like, it, <laughs> it just was not enough. It was not enough. I need the lawyer from the Time to Kill that we're going to watch next to come into the Green Mile and fix this, <laughs> is what I need. <laughs> okay. All right. But I'm, I'm being very unreasonable about it. Like, I realize my emotional reaction to this movie is unreasonable. When did you watch it? How long has it been? It's been a couple days, two days? Yeah. Yeah, two days. Okay. Still pretty fresh. Yeah. <laughs> the wound has not scarred over. And and nobody adequately prepared you for it. I had no idea what I was getting into, except yeah. that everyone said I was going to cry. And then you didn't. And then I didn't. So maybe <laughs> there's just something incredibly wrong with me. <laughs> That's also a possibility. No, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think that we all relate to and respond to things in our own ways. But I mean, my friend Gina was cracking up because I was literally yelling at my television when this movie went <laughs> So angry and disappointed and just, it was bad. It was bad. So let's talk about the thing that you and I absolutely 100% agree on as being the worst thing in this movie. Is his name Percy? Oh my God. Yes. His name is Percy. (laughs) Oh my God. I am not sure if I've ever hated a character this much ever. Yeah. It's tough to, to come up with, with somebody worse. Yeah, he was awful. You know, and taking such glee and yelling, dead man walking behind, you know, everybody. And I wrote in my notes, I said, I hope that dead man walking walks right on top of you and squashes you. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I hated him so much. And I'm pretty sure he was a psychopath. Oh, absolutely. Absolute determination to kill that mouse. And the cruelty, like telling Dell that there was no Mouseville in the moment he was going to die. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even have words for how bad that was, you know, and leaving that sponge dry on purpose so he mm-hmm. could see what happened to Dell. Oh, my God. Just the absolute cruelty of that. I, I just can't even stand it. Although I have to say him ending up as a patient at the Briar Ridge Mental Hospital felt like poetic justice. Absolutely. I think him choosing to stay at the prison in E-Block when he could have left at any time because he had the connections to do it. He chose to stay because he wanted to watch people die. 
Yeah. There's no other word for him other than psychopath. Yeah. And the thing is, I think they all knew it. Like, they knew he was staying because he wanted to watch people die. They Mm -hmm. knew that. And even when they, you know, locked him in the closet, which I was a big fan of that scene. um, (laughs) When they got, you know, got him out and talked to him or whatever, and they kind of said, all right, go go forth and send no more. Like, what happens on the mile stays on the mile. They gave him his gun back. And I was like, y'all are the dumbest people who have ever walked the planet Earth. (laughs) To give someone like that, when he said, oh, I'll think about it, with that look on his face. And you give him his gun back. I was like, "Uh uh-uh, he's going to shoot everybody before he leaves that jail. But I was shocked, shocked when John Coffey grabbed him and sent the brain tumor into him. I did not see that coming. Why did you think he kept it? I thought he was going to try to die on his own terms instead of having to go through the electric chair. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's what Brutal thought. Yeah, I was with Brutal on that. Because I... You know, if you can die peacefully, which, again, I just think is something they should have arranged for him if they had no other choice. I thought that that would have been his his choice instead of the electric chair. Mm-hmm. But I did not see that coming. And that really shocked me. And the fact that he knew what Percy would do. And that was the only way to take out Wild Bill, who needed to be taken out for what he did to those little girls. I mean, it was John Coffey justice, but I kind of felt like he had earned it. Like, (laughs) and I am not in any way, shape or form an advocate for the death penalty. I am absolutely anti-death penalty, but I was still found myself not upset when Percy shot Wild Bill. Right. That's because Wild Bill was a character. I mean, he was. He was awful. He was almost worse than Percy. Yeah. It's just Percy Percy had power, which makes it worse, I think. Mm-hmm. But they were almost two sides of the same coin. But at least Wild Bill didn't pretend to be other than what he was. That's and true. And Percy's walking around in a guard uniform, acting like he's one of the good guys. Yeah, that's true. And he intentionally, like, helped make the mouse comfortable. Like, we should get a box and put batting in it when he knew he was planning on killing him. Right. Exactly. But having them take each other out, I would have kind of been okay with them locking them in a cell together and just seeing who could last longest. Uh, I think this movie (laughs) brings out all of my (laughs) worst dark things, Mandy. I mean. Wow. Rage Kelly on alert here. I'm telling you. And like how brutally he raped and killed those little girls. Like I have, my empathy is just gone. Like it's just gone. And, And seeing Percy get away with everything he got away with, with people looking at him knowing what he is and their solution is just to get him transferred well that's great except for all the helpless mental hospital patients that he'll now terrorize nobody was willing to stand up to him enough like they were going to do what they had to do to get him out of their their jail but then they're just sending him on to hurt other people other places It, it yeah I don't know I think we were supposed to see the good guy guards as like good guys. And mm-hmm. I saw them as like nice guys who refuse to do the hard thing. I can understand that. But I think, I think my perspective is different partially because it was such a different time. Yeah. I mean, people didn't know about mental illness then and they didn't, 
they just kind of chalked it up to boys will be boys. And at the same time, Percy was very well connected and it would have cost all of them their jobs. Right. And I feel like the least of two evils here is they get to keep their jobs and be nice to people and have compassion, then lose their jobs and have people like Percy remain. That's true, too. Yeah, Percy's privilege could have been its own movie. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, seriously, this is this is movie's not bringing out my good side. I just... <laughs> oh, it's tough to watch. It is 100% yeah. absolutely tough to watch. It is. And, and Percy ended up the way he ended up. I was like, good. I had absolutely no empathy for him either. And I don't like that about myself, that that, that was my reaction, but it was. I think it's understandable. <laughs> I do. I mean, if, if John Coffey can be moved to that point, I think that us mere humans can't be faulted for it ourselves. Well, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> John I Coffey mean, definitely has a better heart than I do. <laughs> absolutely. He has a better heart than all of us, I think. And so, like, okay, this is a small thing. And I realize that it's a product of its time. But Hal's wife, Melinda, has a brain tumor. And the doctors told Hal that she had a brain tumor, but they did not tell her. Yep. And he's like, oh, I haven't told her yet. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. This woman did not even have the rights to her own medical information. And he's keeping it from her. I just, I, I, yeah, I just didn't have words for that. It was, it drove me crazy. And then when the Paul and company brought John to Hal's house that night. I mean, they showed up in the middle of the night to heal Melinda. But none of them bothered to explain to Hal, this guy has magic powers and he's going to heal her. They offered no explanation whatsoever. And I was like, please use your words. You need to tell Hal something. Like he has no idea what's going on here. You're just showing up in his house in the middle of the night and bringing this guy inside. I, I could not for the life of me figure out why they didn't tell him something. And it, it just, like, I couldn't quite process this. Apparently, Hal cannot handle being given information. No, I think from their perspective, it, it's the kind of thing that you have to see to believe. He was never going to believe that this prisoner who is in prison for murdering two children is a healer. There there was no way that, that they were even going to be able to have that conversation and still get John into the room, I think. And so that's why they did it the way they did. I guess. But, I mean, they didn't even say he, he can help her or he helped me just trust us. It was just, we're showing up. And I, Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, and also, like, I never want to watch Tom Hanks pee in a movie ever again as long as I live. Yeah, between this one and A League of Their Own, I'm, I'm kind of done. It's like, I was laughing. I was thinking, I wonder if the peeing scene in A League of Their Own was the casting call for this. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, you know who we need. <laughs> we need Tom Hanks for that. And I mean, I know he needed to have some kind of illness. So yeah. John could heal him. But I'm like, couldn't he have had migraines or like really bad allergies or something else? <laughs> so, it just kind of tickled me. I mean, it annoyed me, but it kind of tickled me too. Yeah, I think it did annoy you. You talked a lot about that urinary tract infection. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, I just like, come on. I don't, 
want to keep seeing this man pee. You know, it's just ridiculous. But yeah, mostly, I mean, it was just the big things. It was just this this constant unforgivable justice of this movie. I mean, I did like Paul going to talk to John Coffey's lawyer. And I was thrilled by the actor because I got to yell, Lieutenant Dan! (laughs) Back with Tom Hanks, and that made me very happy. Right. But that guy comparing John to the dog who mangled his son, again, it just leaves me without words. Like, the absolute lack of humanity in this, you know? I don't know. I, I just couldn't stand it. But he honestly believed that John did what he what he was accused of. And so I feel like that's justifiable because if you're going to do an act of horror that heinous, that is inhumane. And so it does not bother me to compare that level of of criminality to an animal. Maybe that makes me a terrible person. No, I don't think. Believe me, I think all of the personality flaws in this conversation belong to me and not you. Oh, hush. But I'm like, how could you have a conversation with John Coffey and believe he's capable of this? Like, the minute he walked into that prison, I'm like, well, this guy didn't do. I don't care what it was. He didn't do it. Like, I don't. And maybe that's just naivete on my part. But I, I don't know. And when Paul was talking to John about, you know, what do you want me to do? He said, what will I say on the day of my judgment when I face God? And he asked me why I killed one of his true miracles. It was all about him. Like, how am I going to deal with this guilt? How do I handle this? And I felt like John saying, you know, I'm too tired of all this pain and there's too much of it. Was him comforting Paul? Like, I don't know that that John Coffey would ever even ask for what he really wanted or that he would even envision, you know, anything better than, oh, I get to see an open night sky or I get to watch a movie. Like the kind of kindness and compassion and help that might have made a difference for him. I don't know that he even would have known how to ask for that. And so it felt to me like he was easing Paul's conscience because he knew that, you know, Paul really didn't have any other choice or wasn't really capable of making any other choice. Mm-hmm. And it just felt to me like Paul was putting the responsibility of the whole thing on coffee and worried about his own guilt and action more than the ending of this man's life. And there was just something about that that really bothered me. That's so interesting that we see this so very differently. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll watch it again later and I'll re-listen to this episode and be like, oh, Kelly, you were so wrong. But this is this is my, my hot take. Yeah, no, it's 100% absolutely valid. I just, I see it differently. And I, I don't know if it's because I've seen this probably four or five times now. Mm-hmm. But for me, I see Paul trying to give John a choice. But it's because throughout the whole movie, and this is one of the things that I have in the section, my tickled pink section. I hate that it's called the tickled pink section for this movie. (laughs) Because nothing in this movie tickles me pink. Um, But but the level of compassion that that all of the guards except for Percy showed for Mm -hmm. all of the men who were on death row was astounding to me it, it's not something that you expect and and you could see it in in little things like letting Dell keep the mouse yeah. or 
letting Dell go do his mouse show while they were rehearsing the executions. Rehearsing the executions in itself is an act of compassion because they want to make sure they get it right so that they don't cause unnecessary distress and pain. And, and so I guess I'm looking at Paul and Brutal, really those two more than anything else because those were the two main ones, but I'm looking at them through that lens of compassion. I did see that in them, and I never got the sense that Paul or Brutal. Now, I did really like Brutal. I have a lot more tickle pink for Brutal than I had for Paul. Okay. I never got the sense that they were there because they wanted to be there. Like, I'm going to go be this prison guard and take out my shit on these guys. I never got that sense from them at all. I got the sense that jobs were really hard to come by, and these were jobs that they could do. Mm Mm-hmm. And I do think that they treated the prisoners with respect and dignity as much as they could. And the, like the first rehearsed execution that we saw, I kept finding myself laughing, even though it was horrific. And I think probably Stephen King is the only person that can make me laugh in something that horrible. Because practicing an execution is kind of a horror show. But um, having the... The guy walks through and pretend, you know, and he was talking out loud through every step. Mm-hmm. And that pretend prayer that he did, I, I did laugh. Like, it was twisted and dark, but God, it was funny. Yeah, I think having Harry Dean Stanton play that part yes. was the absolute right call. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I really did love them for setting up the pretend mouse show for Dale during yeah. his practice round. Yeah. So he didn't have to see that, and it gave him a moment of happiness. Um, and so I, I did think that that was good. But when they came for John, I still felt like John was comforting them. You know, he was like, it's all right, fellas. This is the hard part. And he was I, maybe because he's such an empath, he can't help it. Right. I mean, what what else would you expect him to do? That is who he is. I know. I would do the same thing. Well, you're nicer than me. <laughs> I guess I just want someone to do that for him. And, and we got some of that from them. Like when he walked into the, you know, into the execution and everyone's, you know, the crowd is there and John Coffey says, you know, everyone in this room hates me. I can feel it. I did like Brutal saying, well, feel what we feel for you instead. Mm-hmm. And, and giving him that peace and letting him know that they really cared about him. I did mm-hmm. think that that was a good moment. I just don't think I can ever forgive them for letting him die that way. Like, if they had to let him die, I think it would have been one thing. But letting him die in a room filled with people who hate him and think horrible things of him, knowing that he could feel those emotions targeted at him, is never going to be okay with me. I think that might be the crux of what bothers me so much. Okay. I'm trying to figure out what a different scenario would have been, because I can't imagine any of these men actually killing him. Which I feel like is your suggestion of of drugging him so that he dies. Yeah, but they did kill him. They walked him into an execution. They said roll two. I mean, they, they did, but that I mean, that's that's their job. That's their literal job. The state killed him, not them. And that's different from actually choosing to give him. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, well, and that's not my first choice. My first choice is. You take him home. <laughs> Move to another state where nobody knows you and break him out of prison and 
take care of him and give him love every day for the rest of his life. That's that's yeah. my plan A. Okay. Okay. I am not realistic in <laughs> <laughs> what I want from people, Mandy. <laughs> oh, because The Green Mile is such a realistic movie. Well, and see, that's part of the problem. Okay. Yeah. Because you have magic in this world. Mm-hmm. And so that could have opened possibilities for endings that might not otherwise have been possible. And I think it's almost worse. Like if this was a kind, gentle man who had been sentenced unfairly and was innocent, but had to be executed because he was guilty and there was nothing they could do about it, it would have been a tragedy and I would have cried. But I think because we have magic in the world, that it opened up new possibilities that then were not carried forth. And so to have that level of injustice and his death in the face of magic, I think that was what crushed my soul. Okay. Because I want better from the magical world. Bad enough living in reality. (laughs) True. But there's no evidence of other magic in this world. Oh, no, no, no. There is one more. Because this is the movie I wanted. When he gets to heal Melinda. Oh, she had dreamed about him. She says, I dreamed about you. And Mm -hmm. you and I found each other in the dark. So... There's some connection between the two of them. And I would not be surprised at all if Melinda had some kind of magic in her. But, like, there was already that connection there. And it felt like there was so much possibility with what they could have done with the two of them. That I don't know what it could have been, but I wanted whatever it was. I'm not articulating my feelings about this movie well at all. No, you absolutely (laughs) are. You feel very strongly about this movie. A huge ball of emotional pain and torment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think I'm conflicted a little bit about this movie because on the one hand, I feel like it's it's very much not a Stephen King movie or a Stephen King story. But on the other hand, it is because, I mean, this is coming on the heels of The Shawshank Redemption, which, of course, is another prison movie. Although that one didn't have the supernatural aspects that this one does. But the supernatural is sprinkled throughout so much of his work because Stephen King really likes to play with the idea of good versus evil. And I feel like that's what he was doing here. And I think that's probably why I've never actually labeled it magic Mm. until this conversation. I've always looked at it as almost religious in nature. Oh, that's interesting. Like, not not exactly religious, certainly not Christian, but still some sort of larger force in the world. Because I think of things that, that Stephen King has done, like The Stand. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very much religious-based, if you've seen that one. Um, and it just makes me wonder what he intended by including this. If you think this is good and evil, then is this a movie where evil wins? No, I don't think so. Oh, God, help me find some hope in this movie, Mandy. See, I think there is hope in this movie. I think to have Percy end up catatonic, he, I mean, he put the evil in its place. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Percy's not the only evil, but he was the surrogate, the evil surrogate in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, and so to have him defeated, I think, is absolutely the right call. He needed to be defeated. And I think... Letting John, yes, we both want John to have lived, but I don't think it would have been as good of a story if he had lived. I think he had to die. And I can't entirely articulate why I think that, 
a lot of it has to do with him making the choice. A lot of it has to do with my perception of him making the choice, since Mm -hmm. clearly that's not your perception. And it has to do with his actual ability, because it felt like to me from watching it, his ability was all about pain. Mm. It was about him taking pain away from people and feeling that pain. I never saw him feel pleasure or happiness. And so for him to choose to leave that behind is him choosing to finally feel peace and to be able to do that surrounded by, at the very least, four men who respected him and had grown to care for him, enabled him to do that in a way that previously wasn't possible. And and so those things make me feel okay about it and then because the mouse is still alive I always get really happy because he's a mouse and he shouldn't die (laughs) okay I will give you the mouse the mouse is very cute (laughs) I think because we I saw John experience joy at the same level of intensity that I saw him experience pain you know when he was under the stars and Mm -hmm. he was talking about the constellations when he picked up that pile of leaves and smelled them yeah the man was made of joy in those moments and so if he if he had no ability to feel happiness or joy it might have been one thing but he did and and even to a level higher than I think most of us can okay you know and so like that was one of the things that bothered me so much because he he did have that deep capacity you know, and even when he asked for the Flickr movie, you know, and they let him watch. Now, I mean, granted, they did let him watch Fred Astaire dance, and that made me happy. <laughs> you know, take the man back out under the stars. You saw how much he loved that. Yeah. You know, give him one more night out there. And they didn't, I don't know. It just felt to me like they did just enough to appease their conscience, threw up their hands and said, well, there's nothing else we can do about it. We'll be kind to him as we walk him down the mile. And it's just not enough for me. Okay. Well, then here's a question for you. Do you think the movie wanted us to feel like it was more than that? Was the movie trying to tell us that compassion and kindness and justice was being had? Or do you think the movie was showing us a story of injustice? I think the movie was showing us people being compassionate in a world that is unjust Okay, But I think the overall thesis statement of this movie is injustice will prevail and there is no hope. Like, that's how I felt. Like, uh, when I say it crushed my soul, I am not kidding. Okay. So. I'm so sorry (laughs) that this movie made you so sad. I think it was brilliantly acted. Yes. I think every actor in this movie was amazing. Yes. Obviously, it was intriguing. It was intelligent as it could be. You know, it was a very smart movie. It asked very interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the philosophical space that it put me in. And like, like, until we got to the end, I was all in. Like, I was all about it. I just okay. did not believe for one second that they were actually going to execute this man. And okay. then when they did, I pretty much lost faith in all of humanity. <laughs> oh. Okay. Completely understandable. But, yeah. Until that point, I, I thought it was great. I mean, I didn't I didn't notice three hours had gone by because I was definitely sucked into the story. So, okay. yeah, 
I mean, I will say as a as a quality rating on a movie, yes, it is a high quality movie. It's just crushed everything that I wanted to see. And maybe I just can't handle unjust tragic movies, which is definitely possible. So how did you feel when you learned that that Paul was 108 years old and the mouse was still alive? I kind of had conflicted feelings about it because it did feel like Paul was being punished. And I don't want the world to work that way either. But then the magic question kept coming back to me because if John had passed that long extension of life with the little tiny bit of himself that he had shared with them, how did John not come back to life himself? Like, how was the electric chair enough to really kill him if he had that much in him? If they had electrocuted him, that would have been bad enough. But I kept waiting for him to wake back up. Mm. Like, and then go and get to be free because everyone would have thought he was dead. I could have lived with that. Aww. Like, I really, I would tell you when the credits rolled, I, I was like, wait, you mean John Coffey's really, really dead? Like... <laughs> Oh, this really I did just, break your heart. It really did. I think that's why I can't cry about it because it was too, like, I refused to believe it. <laughs> so I was just like, uh-uh. No, you've got to be kidding me. What? Yeah, I don't think he could bring himself back to life because his power lied in his ability to feel other people. I mean, that's what an empath is. And so he had to take the bad things from other people into himself and I don't think he could take the bad stuff into him that was already in him and I guess well we had introduced the idea of him passing some of it to Paul right and so when Paul goes in to see John you know he's in his he's dead and he puts the Saint Christopher medal back on him Mm -hmm. that's when I thought John was waking back up because Paul if he had had some of that in him could have revived John And then it would have been great. (laughs) I mean, it would have been great because they still would have gone through with the execution, but it could have been a revival. It could have been a healing. Yeah, I don't think Paul had enough to do that. I mean, it took a lot out of John to revive the mouse. Yeah, And so to revive a person, I think, would take a lot more than the small amount that Paul got from him. Because I think, I mean, Paul... It didn't seem like Paul gained the ability to do anything that John did. Like, he didn't suddenly become an empath. He just had a longer life. He just lived for a really long time. So, Does it remind you of um, Captain Jack in Doctor Who when Rose Tyler accidentally made him live forever? No, because he still aged. And Captain Jack never aged. Well, Captain Jack did age, but it took millions of years. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. If we believe that he really is the face of Bo. It's so cool if he really is the face <laughs> of Bo. Okay, sorry. Segue, segue, segue. <laughs> I think I need something else to take the pain of my heart away from this, Mandy. So let's talk about what tickled us pink. <laughs> well, I think I've already covered my stuff, really. I'm, I mean, we've talked about John a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the compassion. Um, we've talked about John's delight at seeing the stars. We've talked about the acting being spectacular. I mean, Tom Hanks is phenomenal. Oh, yeah. I mean, they all are, yeah. but oh, but yeah. Tom Hanks and Michael Clark Duncan. I fell completely it. in love with Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they were fantastic. So yeah, I I I think those are the highlights for me. Um, primarily, the compassion. Mm-hmm. 
but that's, and, and maybe that's just a result of me having seen it so many times. And that's what I need to get through this movie is to, to hang on to something that I see as positive and hopeful yeah, and optimistic. Otherwise it's just going to suck my soul every single time. Mm-hmm. And so it is that compassion that, that I hold on to. And it does give me some small like sense of faith in humanity. Well, that's good. Not everybody is a Percy or a Bill. That's true. That's true. And they were both awful. <laughs> but and I did. I guess I love John so much. I have just a soft spot in my heart always for the gentle giant character. Mm-hmm. And he was the best of that that I have ever seen. You know, him asking, can you leave the light on at bedtime? Oh, when he yeah. asked that question, I was ready to bring him home. I was like, I just want to cook for this man and let him sleep with the light on all night. Like, I <laughs> just, and I did like when he kept saying, I tried to take it back, but I couldn't. I liked later that we understood his wording. You know, mm-hmm. like Percy killed that mouse. I took it back. So you understood what he was trying to say about why he was holding those little girls. Mm-hmm. And so like, the, I mean, it was tragic and terrible but at least you could truly understand what he meant right and what he was trying to express and i liked when he said you're a good man boss howell you too boss edgecombe i sure wish i met you guys somewhere else Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was such a great line but i was also curious like melinda why he had so many scars i feel like there was so much of john's story we don't know yeah and i wanted to know about that but i did find some humor in the movie with Paul and Jan having their pretty great night four times courtesy of John Coffee. <laughs> yeah. And I loved Paul bringing John the cornbread and Coffee said was your missus pleased and Paul said several times and mm-hmm. that was funny. Yep. And I really liked that Paul let John decide who he shared with and who he didn't. Mhm. You know, uh, he said it's yours, do with it as you want to. And like I really liked that. And I loved Brutal for making up the Mouseville fairy tale. Mm-hmm. That was so kind and that was so sweet. And I really loved Brutal for going along with the plan because, you know, Paul had to believe. Like, John had healed Paul. Brutal saw him heal a mouse, but he hadn't experienced that himself. Like, it was different their level mm-hmm. of belief, their level of investment, what they were willing to risk and why. But Brutal still went along with it. And I really like that about him. That's because he trusted Paul so much. Yeah. And then I loved Melinda so much. I loved her dreaming about John. I loved her giving him her St. Christopher medal. I wish something had come of that. But I did really, really like it. Um, So in my story that I want rewritten of Melinda and John, Brutal can come too. Okay. That will make me happy. All right. (laughs) That would certainly be interesting. Yeah. So, did you have any other thoughts that don't fit into our buckets now that you've had to listen to me rant and, like, work out my emotional therapy on the show? Um, I mean, again, it's mostly stuff we've talked about because I was kind of all over the place in this. Like, nothing fit into any one bucket. They all fit into all of them, really, is kind yeah. of how this worked. I, I liked how – I don't even remember what question Paul asked uh, John – But John's answer was, I don't know things. I don't know most things or something like that. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was, John doesn't know things, but he can feel things. Yeah. And so that's when I was able to actually verbalize that he's an empath. 
because I hadn't put that together before that sentence, before I kind of was able to see it through that lens. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting. And then I read something today about John that I'm not sure if it's somebody's speculation or if it came out of the book because I haven't read the book. But it was talking about how John lives in the moment. And the reason he doesn't know things is because as soon as they happen, as soon as he takes something in, he lets it go. Hmm. And so he doesn't remember what he's been through or what he's done. And I thought that was interesting. That is an interesting idea. It There are hints of that. It's obviously not explicit in the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is in the book or not, but I thought it was an interesting characterization. Yeah. Well, and him sort of being hinted at as some kind of angelic being. You Mm -hmm. know, when Paul went to talk to John's attorney, trying to find out about his past, and the attorney said it's like he fell from the sky, Mm. and no one knew anything about him before. So I think that they were, you know, kind of trying to maybe set that kind of idea up. Mm-hmm. But I, I also thought it was strange, and I didn't know what section to put this in. You know, we saw these men executed, but the only person who the crime they were accused of that we know about was John. We didn't know what Dale did, do we? And the first man that they put to death before him, did we ever find out? I don't remember hearing what either of them had done. I don't think we did. It was, I mean, to be on death row in 1935, it had to be murder. Okay. I just thought that was curious. We found out what Wild Bill did even before, I mean, we found out what he was arrested for even before we knew about him and those little girls. And to be honest, I thought Percy was the real person who had killed those little girls. Oh, wow. That was what I was waiting on from like the minute we met Percy. Okay. Um, So I was surprised when it was, I mean, I wasn't surprised that Wild Bill had done it, but I did think that was an interesting turn. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was Percy. Like, I was ready to completely think that he had done that. And then I was kind of sad there was no Stephen King cameo in this movie, because I'm used to seeing him make a cameo in his movies. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure where he would have been. I guess he could have been just sitting in the audience for one of the executions. I did read that he had he did go to the set, and the first thing he wanted to do when he went to the set was sit in the electric chair. Oh, God. Which I would not have wanted to do, so. Somehow that does not surprise me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I still feel really bad, like, talking about my strong reaction to this without fully processing it, because I'm sure I just sound raw and highly emotional, but this is, this is what it is. (laughs) No, I think, I think that is wonderful, honestly. I think being able to kind of talk through that process is a good thing. You're such a sweet soul, Mandy. So what are we going to watch next? I don't know why we did this to ourselves, <laughs> but we decided to put A Time to Kill right after The Green Mile. Oh, God. What were we thinking? I don't know. I mean, you weren't because you had never seen The Green Mile, so I take full <laughs> responsibility for this. I don't know why we did this. Okay, where is the great Southern comedy musical? Because That's going to come in season three. Okay. <laughs> because we have found it. Oh, good. But that will be in season three. So we have two more episodes to go. A Time to Kill and... Big Fish. Big Fish. Oh, God, that movie's going to make me cry like a baby. I have never seen Big Fish, and I don't have a clue what it's about. I literally know nothing about Big Fish. If I remember correctly, it's a story about a father and a son. Okay. 
It's definitely not, it's not like the Green Mile. It's not like <laughs> a time to kill. Oh I'm pretty God. sure there's no murder. Well, a time to kill, I've seen twice, maybe. And I've read the book. It's been a long time, but I read the book a couple of times. So I know what I'm getting into with that one. Okay. Have you seen it? I have. You have. Okay. I have. I've read the book, too. Okay. Okay, cool. I saw the movie first, and I prefer the movie to the book. But oh, that's probably that's because Matthew McConaughey and Sandra Bullock... I like Sandra Bullock. All right. Well, we want to hear from you. If you want to join the conversation on Twitter, use the hashtag SFPOP. Tell us all about your experiences growing up in the South or how you felt watching The Green Mile or what you would like to hear us talk about next week with A Time to Kill. You can find me on Twitter at Mandy Kay, and you can email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Kelly Jones or on the Still Dead and Orgasm podcast from Chippers Media. Southern Fried Pop Culture is funded 100% by supporters like you through our Patreon page. For exclusive content and more, please visit us at patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. Thanks to Jazzy Bentley for our awesome show music. And thanks, y'all. You want to hear just what I think, but I don't walk around to go big. I've got a lot to say about today's modern. Southern Fried Pop Culture is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, please visit eloquentgushing.com or visit us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.